What's going on, Megan? Thanks for being on the show. Appreciate you being yeah, here. Absolutely. Happy to be here. Of course. I, uh, I'm pumped for today, to be honest. I, I say that about everybody, but I'm extra excited today, partially because we have somewhat of a history together. We were fortunately part of like the same dietetic internship class, which sounds so wild to say out loud that that was like five years ago now. So it's been cool to have our paths cross again and have it be in this you know, conversation style on a podcast. So I'm, I'm pumped to bring you on today, partially because we have some history, but just seeing what you've been able to do and create and, you know, be uh, somewhat of a presence on social media has been super inspiring. And I know we share a lot of similar values in that sense. So I think um, just to hype you up a sec too, it's like when I've been on social media, even just in this last year or two, it's been amazing to me to see how like complicated um, people are making things, especially when it comes to, you know, populations that you serve people with insulin resistance, diabetes, pre-diabetes, you know, people who need to make some adjustments and improvements in their health. There's just a bunch of misinformation out there. Um, and I see the overcomplication of things and it is more of a distraction in my opinion, than really doubling down on some of the basics, learning, you know, food principles, understanding, you know, how we build a plate, the importance of, you know, um, pairing carbs, protein, whatever it is, we're going to talk about a lot of it today, but I just want to give you credit. Cause I think in a space full of BS and garbage, you're one of those bright spots that I see on my feed. And it's like, that was super simple to someone like me, but for somebody else that was also simple. And I know that that makes a difference in their life. And I know you've kind of been on a crusade working with the population that you've been, you know, working with here, I don't know, the last year or two. So just wanted to give you credit for that, but uh, tell the people who you are if they don't know you, and we'll kind of go from there. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm Megan um, at Type Two Diabetes Coach Megan on Instagram, TikTok, YouTube, whatever you can think of. Um, I am from Iowa originally, but now I live in kind of the Seattle area, so I like to do a lot of outdoorsy things. If you follow me on any social media, you see a lot of mountains, um, as well as cats I have two cats. You'll see a lot of that outside of my information that I throw on about diabetes. Um, but yeah, I actually did my dietetic internship with Luke's. It's awesome to get to reconnect here. And I've always had a passion for working in the diabetes realm. Um, but I have leaned into prediabetes and type two specifically in my career, Got my first job at an outpatient clinic, um, outpatient diabetes clinic in Iowa, which I loved. I absolutely did. Um, but I did recognize that in the world of type 2 diabetes, like you said, Luke, it's a crusade trying to simplify this for people. It's very overcomplicated. Diet culture has taken its toll. Um, and there's also a lot of disconnect in the healthcare system which I really saw firsthand working in a diabetes clinic. Um, people do their best, but doctors are really well-trained in treating diabetes with medicine. They're not so well-trained in treating you as someone with type two diabetes in lifestyle. You know, they lean toward meds being that first line of defense where most people really would love to learn how to do it on their own, or at least try to before just automatically relying to meds. Unfortunately, then we search Google, we go online to social media, and we find a lot of information on keto or any other crazy diet, or you have to go vegan or you're not going to fix it or, you know, all these crazy scare tactics. So all of that being said, I left my job at the clinic and I created the drop diabetes program to finally provide a program that gives people with diabetes it all. So I wanted to really provide 
a very personalized approach. I wanted to give them all of the knowledge in depth that they needed, but simplify in a way that's really easily implemented in their day-to-day lives. But on top of that personalized approach and the knowledge it takes, something I think a lot of people were missing was ongoing support. So that's what I provide with Drop Diabetes. And I've been doing that for over three years now, and it's been fantastic. So that's a little bit about kind of how I got here. I love that. I love that. I think you and I share some similarity, some similarities in what we do now in the sense of like, Hey, you know, I worked in a clinical setting, was able to maybe identify like some loops and some gaps that weren't being bridged with the job that I was doing and the role that I was serving in that clinical setting and the dialysis setting in the nursing home, you know, long-term care facilities and the ICU. It's just like you said, Western medicine, you know, and I mean, not to, we, we need it. Like we need our doctors. We love them. They train really hard. They do a lot of really good for us, but it is a specialty in which you are treating things with medicine, right? And it's more of this like tertiary prevention kind of approach where we're treating a disease state that has already occurred or taken place or is worsening. And I do think, especially as dietitians, we're biased, like this is what we do for a living, but there's such an important piece for primary prevention in the first place. Um, and, and if you're not somebody who has like type two diabetes or anything like this podcast will be relevant to you in this conversation, I promise, um, we'll talk about a lot of things, but especially people who are diagnosed with like type two diabetes or pre-diabetes, you know, a lot of times it's like, okay, well now what are my options? I have this med or they want to start metformin or they want to do whatever, you know, um, supplement stack for the holistic doctors and stuff like that. But it's like, what's missing. And a lot of times it's like foundation, like nutrition principles, and then understanding how all these things fit together on like a pyramid of like, what's most important to what's least important and where should I put my time to? So that's cool that you have that resource. Cause I find that people who get diagnosed with some of these diseases, it's like people like, it's like the end of the road, you know, I guess it's just disease right. management at this point. And especially with something like diabetes, like there's a lot of room for improvement and even, um, I'm not going to say reversing, but just getting to a spot where you are in a different space than when you get that diagnosis, which is very cool. It's a, it's a very unique thing about this. So I love that. Yeah, absolutely. That's cool. You know, I, I brought you on, I've kind of been on some crusades recently with just like my content on Instagram and some of my podcast episodes, but one of them for like the normal person has been this, like, just unbelievable, like a boom in like normal people wearing continuous glucose monitors, you know, and uh, there's just a lot of stuff on social media, a lot of people, a lot of brands that are like pushing these things. Now there might be a place for like the normal person. There's definitely a place for somebody who has pre-diabetes, you know, um, who has been diagnosed with type two diabetes. But before we like dive into like monitoring and looking at blood sugars, like I want us to just take a step back and look at how carb metabolism works. Like what happens when you eat a piece of fruit or you have a sandwich or, you know, you eat a carb with your dinner and then how does that get into, you know, the bloodstream? And then how is the pancreas involved in like distributing that to cells? Like if we can just spend a little bit of time on that, I think that will kind of lay the framework for other stuff that we talk about today. But if you don't mind just giving us like a, uh, you know, a, uh, carb metabolism for dummies course, let's, I'm here for that. <laughs> yes, absolutely. So in succinct version, um, when we have our carbs, we have a piece of fruit, we have a potato, we have bread, we have our cookie, whatever we eat um, that has the carbs in it, we're going to digest that. There's that process. And then as we absorb that carb, our pancreas is triggered 
to release insulin. So we have a little rise in blood sugar in the carbs that are going into our bloodstream. Then we also have a following rise of insulin. Then that insulin attaches to those carbs to get them inside of the cells, use them as energy. And then the blood sugar and insulin come back down. That's what happens in normal carb metabolism. We want to use that carb for energy. How can we? We attach an insulin and we put it into that cell. Then we could always dig into insulin resistance and kind of go into that side of things. So I just described the natural response of our body when we eat carbohydrates. When we have insulin resistance. And I'll, I'll just stop you for a sec too, just to hit a point too. Um, yeah. You said something that that's normal, right? Like seeing your blood sugar increase after a meal is normal. And I think I just really want people to understand that like, that's what our body is designed to do, right? This whole like, this whole philosophy of like avoid a blood sugar spike. I just, I hate the word spike for some reason. Like if, if people said, Hey, your blood sugar rises, I think that sounds less, um, daunting and and less dangerous. Right. Cause there's just kind of this over, um, over just like classification of like, Hey, when your blood sugar rises, that's always a bad thing. Um, which isn't the case, right? It's what our body is designed to do, you know, now insulin resistance stuff that we'll talk about in a sec, I think, requires more of a discussion, but thank you for pointing that out. Cause I just need people to know that that is normal and your blood sugar increasing after a meal is 100% normal in a normal human. And, um, uh, even in people who have prediabetes and diabetes, like you're not going to not have any blood sugar rise after eating carbs. So we need to remember that. So thank you for that. I love that you're emphasizing that because it's big on, on social media, people will wear a NutriSense, which, Hey, continuous glucose monitor are really cool tools, but some people like to say, okay, I need this flat line. I need to have my blood sugar less than 120 all the time. It's not possible, right? Someone who's normal glycemic, I wore a CGM and my blood sugar rose and fell and rose and fell. And that's how our body's supposed to be. If we try so hard to keep that a flat line, it's, it's not necessarily healthy, right? So that's so good to bring up. It's not necessarily, you know, I think um, the word spike inspires fear in people and they think, oh my gosh, if my blood sugar goes up at all, this is terrible, but it's truly not. It's truly normal. For sure. Now, what starts to happen over time, and I think maybe that's maybe the direction we can go towards now is like, when you develop some of this insulin resistance and maybe your blood sugars aren't having that normal rise and decrease, um, say whatever you were going to say about that when I, before I rudely yeah. interrupted you, um, and we can <laughs> kind of go down that rabbit hole from there. No, that's okay. Yeah. So I want to talk a little bit about maybe why insulin resistance happens. Um, and then I'll go into what it actually does. So insulin resistance is something that can happen for many reasons and some we're really not sure about yet. There's not enough research. It's it's new enough that people or the, the concept is new enough that people don't know everything yet. But one reason we can develop insulin resistance is if we continuously pump far too many carbs into our body and our body can't regulate it anymore. So our response to that insulin starts decreasing. One known component um, is also a high saturated fat diet, which we could get into in a whole other realm. Um, so FYI, things like the keto diet are really not going to help with insulin resistance. Let's throw that out there. Um, but there's also a known genetic component. So insulin resistance can happen by the luck of the draw if you're genetically predisposed as well. So that is to say that we 
you know, insulin resistance is definitely not only caused by eating excess sugar. I think that's something that's really a big stigma around specifically type two diabetes. Um, But we talk about, you know, we think of diabetes, obesity, insulin resistance, all goes together. I work with thin people. I work with people in bigger bodies. Insulin resistance really doesn't discriminate, but I think a lot of people think it does. So then digging into what insulin resistance is, essentially, we talked about that normal response. Our blood sugar raises after we have a carb, insulin comes up to meet it, and we put it in the cell. But what happens is, if you can kind of picture a cell with a door, right, we need a key to unlock that door to get that carb in there. The key is the insulin. So if what happens with, say, type 1 diabetes, I'm going to throw a curveball in here, that's when our pancreas actually isn't making any insulin. We don't have any. People with type 1 have to take insulin. With type 2, we're still making it. So our blood sugar is going up. Insulin is going up. And unfortunately, both of those things stay there because the cell has completely changed the locks and insulin no longer works to get in. So that's why that can lead to higher blood sugars. To take that even a step further, insulin resistance can lead to weight gain because what happens to that stuff that stays in our blood? It ends up converting into fat molecules and we store it as fat. So that's why, you know, sometimes we think, oh, people are overweight and that's why they have insulin resistance. That's why they have type 2 diabetes. But it's more of a, is it the chicken or the egg first? Did we have insulin resistance? And that's why we now have weight problems, that type of thing. So that's kind of in a nutshell where insulin resistance happens. Speaking of cats, sorry. <laughs> Love that. Thank you for that. Yeah. So it's, I mean, at the end of the day, it's going to be multifactorial, you know, and there's uh, there's a lot of contributing factors and things that can put people at risk for developing insulin, insulin resistance over time. But I like that you said genetics because there really is people out there that there really are people out there that are playing the game, maybe a harder level. Right. And then you, maybe you have, uh, like a food environment that is not conducive for people to intuitively eating healthy or making better choices. Right. Um, so I think that that is such a, an important thing to remember here is like, Hey, just because someone has diabetes doesn't mean that they can't control what they're eating all the time. It just, it's so much deeper than that. So thank you for hitting on that. And then um, kind of a, a follow-up question. We talked about carbs here. So um, when it comes to developing insulin resistance, I love the lock and key analogy, right? And, and insulin resistance is represented by like, hey, I, I'm knocking at the door and and I can't get this glucose into this house, right? So, and then insulin improve or uh, increases, the insulin production increases. So it's like 10 insulins knocking on this door and like shoving this energy into right. the cell eventually. Right. But over time, your cells lose that capability to respond to that insulin as much as they used to before. And, um, I love that analogy. There's a million of them, but that's always one that stuck with me. Um, so I guess my question is now is like, is carbs, are carbs the enemy here? Are carbs the thing that gives people diabetes? Is it, or is it like a combination of, Hey, too much energy consumption over time, other factors, because a lot of times people are quick to say, going low carb, going low keto because or uh, going keto because now I have insulin resistance. So just cutting out carbs completely is the answer. Um, where would you say or steer somebody in that direction that is in this mindset of like, oh, carbs is kind of the enemy now? Yeah. Ooh, I love this one. There's a, there's a lot to unpack here because there everybody yeah, sorry for that. first thing, 
we need to cut out our carbs. It sounds logical, right? Because at first you think, okay, shoot, I have diabetes. Okay, I have carbs. They raise my blood sugar. So I just need to stop eating those. My blood sugar will stop raising. Well, what happens is our body and our metabolism is a, a wonderful complex machine and it's not as black and white as that. So our body does need carbohydrate, especially our brain. Our brain is the only organ that only uses carbohydrate primarily. Um, so we do need carbs to keep our metabolism functioning properly, which is important because diabetes is a metabolic condition. Insulin resistance is a metabolic condition. Um, so simply cutting out carbs really doesn't help the whole problem. It doesn't lower insulin resistance. It only lowers it on the surface. So eventually we're going to have those big rises in blood sugar and the big falls. And that's where we get so much instability. So essentially, carbs are not our enemy. We do need to have them. It's just that when we have insulin resistance or in a case of prediabetes, type 2 diabetes, we need to know how our body reacts to carbs and how we can have them in the most responsible way, truly. Absolutely. Yeah, well put. You know, I think it's uh, understanding that it's not always just going to be one thing. You know, it's not some nutrients fault. It's not, you know, replacing this for this is going to be the magic answer. It's likely a combination of things, uh, including, you know, your environment, your lifestyle, your physical activity, your totality of your diet and what your diet composition looks like, what you're doing consistently. Um, that's where like people like Megan, I just love what you do. And I say, I do it too, because I work with people with diabetes as well, but just being able to like take a more comprehensive approach instead of saying, here's a medication, here's one food rule, here's one macronutrient to cut back on. And then this should resolve on its own. When in reality, it's, it's understanding how everything works together and then being able to make, you know, what will work with your lifestyle and your current situation, what will make that work for you so you can continue to make improvements in, in a lot of these markers. So that's awesome. Absolutely. And I think you said something really good to earlier about how, you know, saturated fat too. I don't want to go on this whole hiatus here, but just painting a bigger picture here of, we even have research too, where people who are cutting back on refined sugar and replacing that with saturated fat, and they still develop insulin resistance with that. And it's just important to note that again, it's very multifactorial and it's not just one macronutrient like carbs and fats. It's not to say that you need to be afraid of both of them, but it's just understanding what are good sources. How can we pair them together? How can we kind of create this diet that is going to be habitual for us that we can make positive outcomes come from that too. So. Yeah. I think the key word that you just said was replace. When we cut out carbs, you're either going to starve or you're going to replace those carbs with something. So when we cut out all our carbs, we end up adding, yeah, we'll, we'll add some protein, right? But we're also going to add a lot of fat. And unfortunately, it's not all unsaturated fat. It's some of it's saturated. And then when we get excess of pretty much anything, that's not great, right? So time and time again, you know, we, we go through decades and there's a new big fad diet each decade, right? You got the Atkins and then we had the low fat phase and now we have the high fat, low carb again. And every single time in nutrition, we come back to moderation is key. And it's amazing how we forget that every time. And then we come back and realize, hey, you know, maybe if we just had a pretty normal amount of all of these awesome nutrients that we really need in our bodies and we eat enough food instead of cutting back on everything and starving, it's amazing how our bodies kind of heal themselves, right? And just continue your, your labs, stay healthy.
in that yep. situation. Yep. Just kind of understanding that like energy balance is, is relevant here and, and not eating too much over time is, is another other caveat. And I love that you just said labs here as well. Cause I'm, I'm curious, um, what are things that you're looking for? Somebody who's listening here, what are things that maybe you might see on a blood panel, um, markers that you might be looking at if you, you have prediabetes or if you're checking to see what your blood sugars are, are there really a few or one test that you're looking at in specific or recommending that people check consistently to just kind of check where they're at or how can we tell if somebody is insulin resistance or how can somebody kind of go about finding that out? I love this question. So a couple layers to this. Number one, that A1C and a fasting blood sugar are the two numbers that are actually diagnostic of higher blood sugars, which tells you there's definitely insulin resistance happening. There is an insulin test that you can get done. Um, the doctors that I've worked with in the past and people I've talked to that are my clients, their doctors agree, it's not super accurate. So they don't use it very often. And it's really not the best indicator of insulin resistance. So kind of take that as you will. Uh, but one lab that I actually recommend checking, and usually you get these done yearly, your lipid panel or your cholesterol triglycerides, triglycerides is one lab that will go up in pretty much direct correlation with blood sugar levels. So if your triglycerides are a little high, but your blood sugar is not showing it yet, you should know that you might have some insulin resistance happening. And if you want to dig into it just a little bit, if we can't use back to our lock and key example, if we can't get that carbon to the cell, we have no energy. We have to use something. So we get fats from our stores. We turn them into something we can move in our blood, which is a triglyceride for fats version of how it moves through the blood. And we use that as energy. So that's why if your blood sugars are going up, your triglycerides are probably also going up. So that's my recommendation on labs. It's always important to consider cholesterol levels just because, again, diabetes is a metabolic condition and often metabolic conditions kind of come in pairs, pairs or threes. So we do have to consider cholesterol um, and overall health, but that kind of comes back to a balanced diet, right? Comes back to keeping everything balanced and in normal amounts. Cool. Yeah, that's great. So, it, and fortunately, I think all of those things come pretty standard on any type of like routine blood work that you might get from your GP or your provider or whoever is checking blood on you. Uh, A1C, fasting blood glucose, uh, just like a, a lipid panel, just doing any type of comprehensive panel, you're likely going to get those blood work. And I, I, I sit here and I say this as like a now like 28 year old, but I can't emphasize the importance of normal, healthy people getting their blood work checked routinely. And it, like, it doesn't have to be every, you know, quarter or six months, but like once a year is great, you know, and, and those are oftentimes trends that you can look back over a five-year stretch to see, are things coming up? Are they coming down? Are they staying the same as things come up? Does that put me at risk? Or is there something going on that might need a little bit more addressing a little bit quicker instead of going through you know, 10 years of your life without getting blood work done. And then all of a sudden your triglycerides are in the four hundreds and then your A1C is like, you know, 8.2, you know, and I just, uh, sitting here, I just can't emphasize that enough of people getting routine blood work, even if you think you're generally healthy, right? Cause like you said, there's genetic predisposition to some of this stuff and 
There are people who are at lower, you know, maybe leaner body weights compared to somebody who might have a hundred pounds of excess body weight that might present with similar lab results, you know, and, and it's important to just keep that in mind and be proactive in this, like, you know, fight against developing these metabolic conditions. Cause we have control over it right. really. Absolutely. That's awesome. We That's do. Awesome. We do. I think a lot of people have, um, kind of a mindset of, well, if it's going to happen, it's going to happen, but it really isn't. It isn't that way. Almost always we have control again, genetic component. Absolutely. But even with the genetic components, we've still got some control. It's only, you know, we need to focus on it. Absolutely. Yeah. I love that. And let's say maybe you have a client or somebody who joins the drop, you know, diabetes program. Would you say that, Hey, you have a, a fasting blood sugar reading, you have a, a hemoglobin A1C, maybe you have a lipid panel, or you can see some triglycerides. Like are those comprehensive enough in your opinion for you to say, Hey, okay, let's implement these strategies. Or is it, it's kind of like a question that I feel like we already know the answer to, or are what we doing to address those things, what people should already kind of be thinking about and doing as well. Like not, not not having this appreciation that, okay, I have to start eating and thinking this way once I get diabetes, but from a prevention standpoint, thinking in similar ways, but kind of a two-part question, are those enough for, for you to kind of say, Hey, let's take this seriously and let's do X, Y, and Z versus I think everybody should be kind of sticking to some of these principles. And we'll go into that here in a little bit too. Yes, absolutely. I think, you know, the way, way that I treat my clients with type two as far as every every single human needs a personalized approach, there is no diabetes diet. You cannot go online and download a seven-day meal plan. It is not going to work for you because everyone is different and everyone needs something different. So that's a little soapbox there. But um, no, we don't need to... Most, most of the principles that I'm teaching my clients with either pre-diabetes or type 2, they're very similar because pre-diabetes and type two are very, you know, similarly addressed, but that doesn't mean we have to wait to get there. You know, like I said, there's no diabetes diet. We can be following a lot of these principles before, you know, as preventative nutrition in to kind of give you an example of that, the way that I recommend my clients to eat I eat very similarly. Now, do I have a completely different amount of carbs than Rachel or than Betty? Yes, absolutely. But I eat in very similar principles, very similar styles. Yeah, that's awesome. And I think that's important to note that this is likely, you know, how you maybe if you are developing prediabetes, you have type 2 diabetes like the eating habits that you are going to implement are ideally going to be the same that you do when you, you know, eventually get to remission or as you continue down your health journey. So it's, it's more of a foundational approach to be able to say, Hey, this is something that I'm not going to crash diet for, for a you know, month stretch. And then right. just kind of have this yo-yo kind of bounce around effect that really diet culture is kind of instilled in people, you know, how, what it means to be healthy and lose weight. Um, but it's more of a continuation of how can I make, you know, a strategy now individualized to my needs that will be easy to continue going forward as well. Um, and maybe we'll talk about that. Like what are, what are some kind of building blocks or some things to really keep in mind when it comes to building your plate, building, building your diet, adding things to your grocery list. Cause we've already talked about how, Hey, carbs aren't the enemy, but too much can be a problem, right? Um, saturated fat, too high fats, you know, not of these, not these heart healthy fats 
can be a problem, but they can still fit within moderation, right? How do you go out, go about approaching that with people and, and what would be some like general recommendations that we can keep in mind? Yeah, absolutely. So first and foremost, always find a personalized approach and make sure that the amounts are really tailored to you. But when it comes to building a plate, there's three nutrients that are really important for keeping, um, if you have insulin resistance, for improving that or for keeping your body preventative um, from getting insulin resistance, and that's fat, fiber, and protein. So those three nutrients really help to stabilize our blood sugar in a few different ways. One of them is actually simply slowing down our digestion. Let's say you have a piece of just white bread um, you just eat the piece of white bread. You're going to digest that. You're going to have a blood sugar raise that's maybe higher than you want it to be. And then it's going to drop a little faster than you want it to drop. If you have a piece of whole grain bread with some peanut butter on it, you've got fat, fiber, and protein in that meal. Your blood sugar is going to rise very nicely and it's going to sustain for a bit. And then it's going to fall very nicely again. So having a meal that contains those three key ingredients will really help you to stabilize blood sugars overall. Another example of that very basic example is let's say we do a steak stir fry. We've got some rice, but we've got the veggies. We've got the steak. We have some protein, fat, fiber, and boom, we have a stabilized meal. So that's how I recommend at a base level building a meal to prevent insulin resistance or to lower it and stabilize blood sugars. That's awesome. That's awesome. So fiber usually coming in the form of a carbohydrate too, right? So we're kind of getting some carbs with typically fiber sources we get, unless it's like a non-starchy veggie and different things, but understanding like, Hey, when we do maybe go down the carb selection route, it's things like you said, maybe like whole grain, um, rices or, um, uh, breads and pastas or brown rices, things with a little bit more fiber content, um, potentially even, you know, things like, uh, fruits and different types of, uh, you know, summer and, and winter fruits and just kind of seeing how those respond, but pairing that with a fat source with a protein source that isn't going to give us this immediate jump up and then followed by kind of like a, a lower Valley that you might, you know, see on like a continuous glucose monitor, if you were tracking your blood sugars consistently. Right. Yeah. Yep. Awesome. Absolutely. Yeah, that's great. So it's it's more so about how can I create a plate with these three components and start to repeat that multiple times a day instead of maybe just like crash dieting or fasting or not eating at all um, or, you know, uh, just having a meal with only protein source at it. I think that's where people can kind of get some confusion where it's like, hey, well, f- fats aren't super great in excess and neither are carbs. So before you know it, somebody's just eating like protein and water only kind of thing at the end of the day, you know? Um, so it's understanding <laughs> yeah. that all of them can fit, but it's, it's the breakdown in which you fit them on your plate and how much you eat them. And when you eat them together is really going to be one of the more important things to consider here. Yeah, absolutely. I, I will say that they, I don't have a single client who has a single food that they can absolutely not have unless it's an anaphylactic shock uh, allergy system, (laughs) right? Because there's even if, you know, let's say white rice, let's use keep on that example. If we have white rice by itself, yeah, you're probably going to have a pretty big raise in your blood sugar. That's how it works. But let's say you have that sometimes with the steak and stir fry example, then you're probably not going to have a blood sugar spike. You're probably going to be okay. Now, is it best to most of the time choose really good fresh foods that have a lot of fiber, a lot of protein? 
Absolutely. But the key here is that we need to make it sustainable. If you can't do what you're doing today for the rest of your life, something's got to give because it's not sustainable for you. So that's kind of, you know, we want to work on how we can build a plate that is perfect, right? We want to work on that. But we also want to recognize that we need to work in our favorite foods too. And if white rice technically raises your blood sugar, yeah, of course it's going to do that. But how can we have it in a responsible way so we can still enjoy our favorite food? I'm not going to give up my chocolate ice cream and I'm not going to ask my clients to, right? It's how can we do it differently to make sure that we're doing it in a healthy way that really honors our body and make sure our metabolism is happy too. Mm -hmm. Ah, I love that. And I think something that I was hearing too, when you were kind of saying that was the fact that like, you don't have to eliminate all like quote unquote processed foods to be able to do this and have healthy blood sugar response after meals. Right. And that's honestly a reality for a lot of people, you know, like, and not even this could be a whole nother spiel about like organic only and, you know, this clean eating concept and only eating whole foods. Like one, that's not always to maybe somebody's advantage in certain cases, but it's really not realistic or attainable for a large population that we have here. And um, understanding that you do not need to go to those extremes to see improvements in some of these things is really important as well. Things like, uh, you know, frozen or prepackaged stuff or even canned stuff. Um, you even mentioned ice cream, right? Like a lot of these things are still on the table, but it's acknowledging that, hey, in order to get to where I want to be, there's going to be some trade-offs required to get there without completely eliminating some of these things that in all reality will likely make you crave that more if you tell yourself something is off limits. So I just wanted to highlight the fact that it's possible and there's a good chance that a lot of the foods that might be incorporated are still like technically processed foods, but processed foods are not a bad thing necessarily. Absolutely. There's so many levels to that with the processed foods and just to carry on with that a little bit, I like to call it the restrict and repeat roller coaster that a lot of people go through because they do these restrictive diets and then they come back up and do the total opposite or go back to whatever negative habits that they may have had. Um, and then they restrict again because they feel bad about it. And then they feel like, oh my gosh, I'm, I'm starving or I hate the food I'm eating. I'm bored. And then they go back up and do the negative habits again. And so if we can just stabilize that, and have some of our favorite foods and also eat pretty well most of the time. I think that goes a long way. Mm -hmm. Totally. And I, I love how we've talked about everything, um, but like losing weight so far. And I know your stance on this. I'd love to talk about it because I think that's a lot of times the intention that people have is like, I'm going to eat a particular way or do a, a particular kind of uh, food kind of diet or exercise pattern with the intention of losing weight, because that is going to be the thing that lowers my A1C or, or fasting blood sugar or whatever it is that you're checking. When in reality, you do not have to have a drastic weight change, or you can, in a lot of cases, maybe maintain a similar weight plus or minus 5% and see some significant improvements in your A1C and a lot of these markers that we're looking at, right? So what is your kind of philosophy around the whole, like, um, you know, weight loss approach in conjunction with some of these things, or is it more so like, Hey, let's address these things. And if weight loss is a side effect of that, then we'll call that a victory too. And we can continue to kind of push down that road without only focusing on how much weight can I lose? How quickly kind of thing, you know? Right. Yeah, absolutely. So my approach around weight loss is that it can be your secondary goal. We're allowed to care about 
about weight loss. And if weight loss is something that ends up being good for your body, it will happen alongside of this A1C drop and maintaining stable blood sugars. It's kind of a nice fringe benefit of getting healthy, right? If we get to a point where our blood sugars are stable, our metabolism is hopefully staying stable, then we're also going to see weight loss. But on the flip side of that, because I do have a lot of clients who desire weight loss and I do have a lot of clients who see weight loss, but we never count a calorie and we never focus on that weight loss. And that's the key. If we do on the flip side, focus on the weight loss, we can do a lot of things that are not healthy for our bodies that promote weight loss, like eating very, very low calorie diets. Eventually that lowers your metabolism, which increases insulin resistance, increases your risk of all of these things. Hence the restrict and repeat roller coaster. Um, And so that's why I don't take a weight loss first approach. I take kind of a weight loss second approach if that's something that people want from me. If people don't even mention weight, we don't even work on weight because it's not a true indicator of health, right? It's the lab work that's really the true indicator of health. Yeah, that's great. And I think kind of this overarching approach is like, hey, you know, like if you want to track calories and if you want to track how much protein you're getting and how much energy you're consuming, like that is, that is an option if that's something you'd like to do. Or I I do believe that that can be a good like answer for some people, but the other side too, like that could be a not very great approach given somebody's food history, dieting history. Uh, Maybe they've tracked food in the past and had a very negative experience and it kind of leads to these like disordered eating patterns, or maybe they've had an eating disorder in the past. And there, both of those statements can exist. You can track food or you can not track food. And that could be the right answer for somebody. So it's again, like you say, just coming back to a place where what is the overarching goal understanding that weight loss is not the thing that is going to equate to you always improving and all these other things. And that's why it's like taking blood work, going back to the blood work. What are your trends over time? You know, what are your, you know, day-to-day blood sugar readings? Um, How is your confidence around selecting food? How is your capability going to social events and being able to like curate a meal that's like off a meal plan and you, you can be able to like replicate what you're doing, you know, outside of your home, Um, compared to what you're doing in more controlled environment day to day kind of thing, you know, like those are all markers of progress that I want people to wrap their head around or that are really awesome and positive. And ideally sometimes more important than some of the other, like, did I lose a pound today kind of thing, you know? Right. I like that philosophy around food tracking and it kind of aligns with, you know, my philosophy around food tracking is it can be such a helpful tool but we don't want to do it for the rest of our lives. It's cumbersome sometimes. If you're somebody who loves tracking your food and it really keeps you on track, maybe you're kind of type A like I am, then that's awesome. Use it as a positive tool. A lot of my clients like to track their food alongside their blood sugars for the first while. It helps us calibrate our eye. It helps us really learn more about ourselves, but it's not something that I recommend doing for the rest of your life, right? Because it's good to track that, but we need to also be learning about our body so that we can eventually not have to track every morsel of food and still see that sustainable result. Yeah. Tracking should and will always be a means. It's not a an end destination. So keeping that in mind, if your plan right now is to track food, but you have no idea on how, how to make an exit strategy for that, 
like chances are you're kind of missing the point of of what we're looking for from a sustainability approach when it comes to eating for the rest of our lives. Because again, this is not something that is going to go away. And that's what makes this so unique and so important is, yes, there's strategies and things that you can get a short-term result, but we're looking for that you know, long-term result as well. And uh, I think sometimes people get so blinded and so hyper-focused on what are they going to do in the week or the month or in the three months and kind of forget what they're going to do for the next 10 years of their life, ideally. So I think that's great. Yeah. Well said. Hell yeah. You know, kind of talking about diet, you always, you always hear diet alongside exercise when it comes to like maybe blood sugar management, or even people always see the, you know, commercials, like in addition to diet and exercise, this can do blah, blah, blah. Where, I guess exercise is a very broad topic here, but are there general recommendations on exercise, maybe getting people in the door, um, minimum requirements that can really help complement what we're doing from a dietary intervention side, um, and maybe even talking about how exercise can actually help improve some of these things. I think, I think we want to like drill down that exercise is also a big key to this puzzle as well. Yeah, absolutely. Especially when it comes to insulin resistance. So there's two layers to exercise when it comes to blood sugars. If you're someone who has less blood sugar control, maybe you have a prediabetes diagnosis, exercise is going to help you control that. It's going to help you lower the blood sugars and keep them there. But to lower insulin resistance, there's two types of exercise that are really, really helpful. One is walking, light cardio exercise. The other is strengthening exercise. So anything that helps to tone our muscles is really important in insulin resistance because if we're going back to that locked cell analogy again, we can actually unlock that cell from the inside by exercising. It helps our muscles use that glucose and insulin more effectively. So boom, you lower your insulin resistance, you lower your blood sugar, double whammy, that strength exercise is so, so important. Now that can be, you know, if you like using weights, more power to you, but it can be body weight, strength activity. You can find YouTube channels and apps for that if you just don't really know where to start. Um, but if we can do that two or three times a week with strength activity, that's my recommendation. And it doesn't need to be starting at, I'm going to do 30 minutes of strength activity three times this week. It can be 10 minutes of wall sit or crunch crunch or push up or holding a plank on your knees, wherever you can start, just start. Even do two minutes of a strength exercise and it will get you far eventually, right? We need to build that habit. And on the topic of sustainability, like we've kind of been touching on today, just those little habits really, really build with that strength exercise. Same goes for walking. If we can get it in 10 minute spurts, at a minimum, that's really helpful because you get that cardio benefit from the walking. Um, if there's other versions of cardio that you enjoy, absolutely go for it. Anything helps, right? Anything helps. But in a nutshell, those are the two things I recommend for lowering insulin resistance is that walking and strength exercise. Yep. Awesome. Just, just do something right. And alongside the walking, right? Like just being sedentary in general is not great for optimal health, right? Like we know that everybody knows that. Um, and it's finding ways that you can be more active, get on your feet, maybe for somebody that, that instead of like tracking food, they're tracking their steps and they're shooting for 
five to 6,000 steps a day compared to the 3,000 that they normally get. And if that is something that gets you up and gets you moving for, like you said, 10, 20 more minutes a day, that is going to be a victory, right? And resistance training too. I'm happy you mentioned that. I, um, that's what I do with my clients as well. We, we do more hypertrophy work than anything. Uh, and, and honestly, having muscle is good for so many other things than just looking better naked, right? Um, and your metabolism and also glucose metabolism is a huge part of that because muscle being one of the larger disposal sites for carbohydrate from the food that we eat for, for you know, storage form and, and using that for energy, having it stored there. And like you said, being able to um, just used his energy when we're doing some amount of resistance training work. But like you said, it's like one day a week, if you're not doing anything at all, is going to be better than doing nothing. Uh, eventually two to three days a week, maybe we do 20 to 30 minutes at a time. When you think about it, it's easy for me to say, but that bar is fairly low. You know, it's, it's not this like seven days a week, hour at a time where you start to see some of these benefits. It's literally one to two or three days a week doing you know, 20 to 30 minutes of activity that can make all the difference in the world in the beginning. So I just want people to understand that it doesn't always have to be this extreme with your exercise. Like a lot of people get in the mindset of they need to do that because they're not doing anything. So. Oh, yes. So well said. Anything helps, right? If you go out for a 10 minute walk this week and you haven't walked in three months, that is way more than you've done right? That is a huge win. Huge, huge, huge win. It doesn't have to be all or nothing. Absolutely. Yeah. I think, I think the exercise component is, uh, it sometimes goes hand in hand with the diet, right? And it's not to say like exercise independent of everything else can have benefits. Diet independent of everything else can have benefits. But when you start to mix these things together and you start to create a life that is conducive to doing all of these things, you know, at a, at a higher baseline than what your normal baseline is. Like that's when you see a lot of these improvements maybe happen quicker than just doing one thing alone. Uh, so again, it, it doesn't have to be to the extreme with doing everything at once, but the better we are adding some of these things together and making that a priority, those puzzle pieces are going to fit together a little bit quicker. And you might see some of these, you know, blood markers improve your overall health, improve your body composition, improve how your confidence and how you feel improve. Like those are all the things that are going to help keep people on this track of better health, putting themselves first and making these decisions. Cause again, like we talked about, it's difficult to do this stuff, right? Like it's easy for maybe people like you and I who live and breathe fitness and nutrition and have done this forever. And we do this for a living, but you got to remember, like not everybody's like that. And, and the majority is not like that. So it's just these small stepping stones that we can lay down that again, will keep you on this path forever. Ideally. Yes, absolutely. That's cool. So I, we kind of hit diet and exercise pretty well. I'm going to bring up the supplement kind of discussion here too, because I feel like that is a lot of times people will read on a blog or hear from their aunt, uh, Tracy, right. Or, or they'll hear, Oh, I started taking cinnamon and my blood sugar has improved X, Y, Z. Right. Or, um, even stuff like apple cider vinegar. I think there's a lot of things in the media I said a couple of them, the other one being um, maybe berberine, but any supplements that come to mind for you, how would you recommend or how would you go about approaching like adding supplements and you know, incorporating that, maybe holding off on them in conjunction with what we already talked about? Are those like a third, fourth thought, you know, way down the line after we get some of these other things in pack? Like what 
what would be your recommendations if you could kind of tell somebody who's looking at all the list of supplements that they could potentially take for blood sugar regulation? Like, how does that fit into this whole conversation that we're having? Yes, I love it. So I like to talk about supplements as kind of the cherry on top. You can't have a cherry on top of your cake and ice cream if you don't have the cake or the ice cream. Right. So if we are thinking, oh, my blood sugars are high. I don't know what to do. I don't want to go on metformin. I heard cinnamon helps. You can take the cinnamon. It's probably not going to hurt you, but it's probably not going to make a gigantic difference. What we need to do is focus on the diet, focus on activity and increasing that. We're going to get a lot more bang for our buck there. And supplements can be kind of pricey too. Right. So we're just kind of throwing our money at all of these supplements that might work a little bit when diet and exercise are going to help so much more and they're sustainable. We need to have those in place. And then once we do, if we want to try a supplement, sure thing, try it out. Always ask your doctor because certain ones, especially berberine can have contra in, in oh my gosh, I'm losing my words, contraindications. <laughs> Is that what I'm trying to say? Right. Yep. So just always ask your doctor. Um, You said the biggest ones, the cinnamon, berberine, and apple cider vinegar are the three that are kind of getting the most attention. There is research that they can help, berberine being the one lately that's shown the most promise. Um, I still think that they all three are pretty individual. Some people find help with those. Some people don't see as significant of results. So it's something that you can absolutely try, but I wouldn't um, rely on it, if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. I think, I I think there's a lot of stuff out there that might work or might help a little bit. Like, like there's a lot of supplements that you will see claims. You might see some small amounts of research on berberine having a little bit more traction recently. And to be honest, I wasn't like blown away with the recent, you know, like last five year research of berberine. And, and if you look at a lot of those studies, it's like this, you know, maybe not controlling for some other important variables, or there's some confounding variables that weren't acknowledged or that in addition to like exercising or doing whatever with their diet, it's like, it's just really difficult to tell that that makes a big difference at all. And I think, I think one of the most important things that I'd love people to take away is like, there is no supplement that is going to do the, the work for you when it comes to changing your diet, changing your lifestyle, changing your priorities, getting, you know, uh, more active, making this like commitment to yourself that what you were doing in the past is not something that is conducive to you living a happy, healthy life going down in the future. If that's what you decide to do and that's what you want, right? Um, Supplements are often looked at as something like, it's something that I can just pay that I could take. And then that will maybe alleviate or offload some of the burden that I have to do with these other things to like, have it be some of this quick fix. And you can't blame people for that. I mean, that's some of the information we're reading. I mean, you look at Amazon, that's fucked everybody up from like, Hey, I could buy this and I can get this thing tomorrow or, uh, even Uber eats or Grubhub, or there's just this instant gratification kind of culture that we've kind of grown accustomed to living in. But unfortunately it just does not work that way with your health and fitness. And there's kind of that saying, like you, you walk a mile into the woods, like you got a while, walk a mile back to, you know, uh, to get out of it. You don't necessarily have to walk the whole mile out. Like you could walk fucking 200 feet back and you can see some significant improvements like quickly, um, but you still got to keep walking out of the forest. It's not going to take you out completely. So 
just kind of my little uh, word vomit on that there. But supplements, I love the cherry analogy. It's just, it's something that you maybe earn the right to talk about after other things have become, you know, more of permanent and more in check that maybe weren't before that are going to make the biggest difference, you know? Right. And if, you know, if you see a claim that a supplement can lower your A1C by 0.5% or something like that, for reference here, an A1C that diagnoses diabetes is 6.5 and above. We even see, you know, type two diabetes medication advertisements on TV that say, you know, most people lowered their A1C 1%. Well, that's fantastic. But I've seen people within, you know, within the program that I work with where not using medications, using diet and exercise, we've gone from 12 to 6. You know, we've gone from 11 to 7. We've lowered our A1C 4 or 5%. It just shows the power of doing it on your own. And yes, sometimes medications are necessary and helpful, but they're never our first thing to rely on. We have to have that good foundation. And it's not just blood sugars. You want to make sure that you have longevity. You want to have mobility long-term. So it just goes to show the importance and the huge impact that your diet and your activity can play versus the tiny impact that the medication or the supplement might. I feel very strongly about that. I think that's really a backbone of everything that I do for my clients and everything that they want that they're not quite getting from their doctors or even their holistic doctors that are asking for a lot of supplements. Mm -hmm. Amen. Amen. And just kind of quick follow-up question on that. Like how you mentioned, like, Hey, you can, you know, you could drop these things by a percent or whatever, but you've seen like 6%, you know, what, like, what is a time frame that, Hey, somebody listening to this podcast, maybe I was diagnosed with prediabetes or have diabetes. And my A1C is this, like, are there timelines that you would throw out there generally for people like, Hey, you can see some improvement by doing, you know, the diet, by exercising, by getting, you know, some resistance training in a little bit more consistently. Like, is there a timeline that you, people can expect to see some improvements? Um, or is it this like long drawn out thing that doesn't happen for a while, if you had to say, and I know it's hard to to answer because everyone's going to respond differently, but I know everybody at some level craves that like validation that what I am doing is working. And so therefore, if I'm going to keep doing it, I want to see the progress from it. Or if I don't, I'm going to quit. Like, is there a, like a minimum time commitment? And again, we're talking about doing this forever. Right. So I don't want people to have like a time frame attached to this, but just some things to look out for and some improvements, maybe not from a blood work standpoint that people can keep in mind when they start doing this stuff, just to reinforce that what they're doing is great. Yes. So I'm going to use it in three month chunks because that's how often we would get an A1C done. Um, But it really does depend on the person. And remember the key of sustainability here. You're not going for a crash diet that's going to lower your A1C because then you're going to see it come back up. And that's absolutely not what we want. Um, So I have seen people go, I'm going to use a couple real examples for my clients here. So I had one client go from an 8.3 to a 5.6 in three months. So that's realistic and absolutely wonderful. I've also had clients um, go from, she was at 10.1. She got to an eight for her first three months. Next, she went to a 7.3 in six months. And at her nine months after starting with me, she was at 6.0. So that shows you that everyone is different and you just have to keep allowing your body to heal, doing the right things. And you will see that improvement. 
but it's not overnight, right? I'd never, never advertise a magic pill. It might not happen in one month. It might happen in three. A lot of people really do, but it might also happen in six months, nine months. But the key there is that it has stayed there. It has to stay down once you get it there because you're not trying all of this effort just to lower your A1C and see it come back up or lose weight and see that come back up like you did on the countless rounds of Weight Watchers or Noom that you've done in the past, right? So, yeah. Nice. Nice. That's great. I think the three month increment is, is great. And that's honestly something that I've had in the back of my head too, just related to the A1C. And that's kind of a, and for the people, we didn't really describe what A1C is, but it's, it's more of like a, a long-term snapshot of what like your blood sugar averages over the course of like a, a three month stretch compared to like the individual, like uh, blood draws, or if you're looking at your CGM or something like the, the very day-to-day uh, -day transient kind of markers that you'll see, it's more of an average kind of snapshot. And that, that is something that again, I think is, you might know, you will know uh, more than me, but used as kind of a diagnostic criteria more so than like what a, a single blood sugar it is post preandal after a meal or something, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Exactly. Cool. Cool. Yeah. I think, I think that's amazing. And you know, three months is not a long time. If you think about that and you say that out loud and, um, I, with that being said, like having this commitment of like, Hey, every three months I'm going to check in and reassess understanding that. And then having the intention of not letting the day-to-day -day stuff fuck with you as much, I think is super important, you know, cause, cause again, you know, people might be thinking they're doing well, I'm pairing the fat and the fiber and the protein with my meal, but it's still 190 after this meal. Right. And, and maybe you tested a different time or just, there's a lot of things that can impact that blood sugar. And, and again, if you're just pricking your finger, like you have no idea sometimes what some of these trends are doing. So not getting too hung up on what do the, the blood markers say on an hour to hour basis or pre post meal basis. And then being able to just like, okay, look at that, look at the trends and chances are like your baselines will continue to go down. Maybe your higher spikes were 220, 230, and now they're 180, 190, you know, like it's still technically high, but having that expectation that it's not going to reveal the whole story when I prick my blood after a meal, sort of speak, you know, I just, I wanted to right. help people appreciate the fact similar to the scale. It's like, you can't, you can't put so much energy and effort into what the scale says every single morning. Cause that's emotionally draining. And it's very similar to, to checking your blood sugars and being really focused on this as well. Yeah, absolutely. I love that. Great. I, I, it's crazy. These hours go by so quickly. I want to be respectful of your time. There's one more thing that I wanted to, to just kind of brush up on, maybe conclude with here at the end. Um, cause we've kind of talked about a lot of situations and things for people who have prediabetes or diabetes. And, um, I think there's a lot of stuff that are applicable to, um, you know, generally healthy people. And chances are, we're just taking this population and getting them to a place that, Hey, we're just, doing what we would have done to prevent this in the first place, but we're doing similar stuff now that we actually have it. Um, but is there like a general, like kind of recommendation or thing for somebody who's sitting here is like, I work out already. I'm, you know, I'm fairly lean. I resistance train. I do cardio sometimes. Like I get enough protein in, like, are there things that you would say like, Hey, maybe insulin resistance isn't a big forefront of your mind. And maybe you can put your energy towards you know, other things, uh, is there stuff that you would say, Hey, here's a general recommendation to, um, keep in mind to prevent getting this from the first place or not even think about it because you're already doing a lot of these things and having these things in check. Should that even be something that people think about 
if that makes sense. Uh, yeah, no, that's a great question because if, you know, let's say you're somebody who insulin resistance hasn't really been on your mind. Number one, like you said earlier, Luke, get your blood work done once a year. It doesn't matter what age you are. If you're in, you know, visibly perfect health, get the lab work done and make sure that it truly isn't something that you should worry about because we did talk about that genetic component. But as long as you are staying active, you're eating well, using some of the principles that we used before. Um, then my other, I have two points. One is we have to remember not to get narrow sighted on a certain nutrient. So maybe I'm getting my protein in, I'm doing great. Make sure you're eating the rainbow, make sure you're getting enough carbohydrate in, listen to your body and make sure you're not, you know, getting starving sometimes and too full other times. Find a good, easy balance and don't get narrow sighted on nutrients. But the second thing is don't get narrow sighted on just food and exercise either. We really do need to take a more holistic approach, make sure we're managing stress, make sure we're getting enough sleep, right? If you wake up at 5 a.m. to go on a run, but you went to bed at 1 a.m., it's better to just get your sleep and take time for yourself. I think a lot of times people get really, at least in the U.S., we get really busy with work and really busy doing all these things. We just need to sit down for a minute and ask ourselves, am I getting enough sleep? Am I too stressed out? Because stress raises our blood sugar too and messes with our hormone balance. So that's my kind of guideline here is make sure we're truly living healthfully. Make sure we're not forgetting anything and getting narrow sighted on food. I love that. Thank you for touching on that too, because I think it just ties in with this whole kind of philosophy of like, Hey, there's a lot of big rocks out there that everybody should be doing and need to be prioritizing. If we're working towards like optimal health or disease prevention, or again, even disease management, if we are diagnosed with something and we're working to correct that or improve that. And it's not only diet, it's not only exercise. It's, are you sleeping? Are you managing your stress? Uh, and again, some of those things, they sound like yeah. Okay. But what does stress management even mean? Like it's, it, it can be very vague to some people, but chances are people challenging, like, Oh, I, I manage my stress fine. Like chances are, those are the type A people who need to actually focus more on that. Right. And really need to have a kind of an audit or reality check of what are they actually doing to implement that? Cause you get somebody with type A who workaholic has family, has kids, they got uh, responsibilities. Now you add their plate, metaphorically speaking, with all these other considerations, medications, getting lab work, being able to um, you know, create these plates and get the appropriate nutrients in and start wrapping your head around all this stuff. Like before you know it, sleep can go out the window. Uh, your ability to like manage your time becomes more difficult because there's all these other things taking your attention away from you. Uh, when in reality, that could also be something that might be hurting or limiting your ability to progress at a pace in which you're hoping to. Um, so when we think of these big rocks, it's like diet, exercise, you know, resistance training, getting enough water in, like staying hydrated, like not abusing, like, you know, recreational, like drugs or alcohol or smoking cigarettes, like stuff that sounds simple, but a lot of people still do. Um, and being able to manage your stress, getting enough sleep and just taking care of yourself in other ways besides eating a certain way, I think is kind of this overarching concept we're trying to hit here. So yeah, again, very multifactorial. So thank you for hitting on that. Yes. Hell yeah. I love that. This was so good, Megan. I appreciate you. I'll, uh, 
I'll link everything in the show notes, but tell people where they can reach you uh, if they're trying to to get a hold of you or learn more about your program and everything you have to offer. Yep. So you can find me at megancohen.com. We can link that website. Um, or I am type two diabetes coach Megan on every social media you can find. I'm on Instagram, TikTok, YouTube. I'm getting more into the YouTube channel. Um, so you can find so much value there. Um, where else? LinkedIn, you'll find me. Love it. Thank you so much again for coming. I appreciate you. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you again for listening to this episode. If you found value and enjoyed it, it would mean the world to me if you posted a screenshot to your social media. If you do, make sure you tag me so I can say thanks. Or if you're on iTunes, scrolling down and leaving a five-star review would be much appreciated. And if you ever want to get in touch with me, you can always find me on Instagram at LukeSmithRD. Thanks again for tuning in, and I hope you have an amazing rest of your day. I'll see you on the next episode.